0: You're listening to the Mindful Psychology Podcast, a podcast designed to explore mindfulness, psychology, neuroscience, and various aspects of holistic health. My name is Jen. I'm your host. I'm also a therapist, an educator, and a yoga teacher. Join me and brilliant guests as we explore various topics and offer you actionable steps so that you can be informed and intentional about your health and well-being. Now sit back, relax, maybe take a notebook out, and let's dive in. Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the mindful psychology podcast so today we are joined by ashley mccann again who joined us before a few weeks or a couple months ago and now she's joining us again so that we can continue our really interesting conversation about disordered eating trauma Uh, we had started talking about trauma and the link between those things and emdr um but we we never got around to really diving in so we're going to do some of that today and some other
1: things so uh, Ashley, welcome! <laughs> Thanks for having me back. It was so nice getting to be here before, and I look forward to getting to chat again. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. So I
0: will, I will pass it on to you. You can uh, tell us, you know, where we left off, and uh, and and work your magic because this is your
1: perfect. This is your area. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Genevieve. Okay, so. Where we left off, we were discussing the role of trauma and healing trauma and overcoming eating disorders, and we were looking at the ways in which our experiences can shape the way that we feel about ourselves and contribute to the ways that we can cope or the ways in which we struggle to cope. Today, I'd love to talk about this a little bit more because I want your listeners to walk away understanding why I view self-limiting beliefs as a necessary aspect of healing and the management of eating disorders and so many other challenges in our life. So today, as we talk about this, you might be thinking of a struggle that you have in your life, whether or not it is in relationship to food or your body. And you might see how this could apply to your own healing or your own change or your own coping. With every person that I work with, we explore the timeline of their life. So the most treasured and memorable moments, as well as the more painful moments. And we do this so that i can get a view and they can get a view of the moments that have shaped us that have you know turned us into this person that we are today and brought us to where we are and you know you might look back genevieve and anyone who's listening on a moment that was difficult maybe a moment of embarrassment let's not dive right into our deepest darkest moments but if you think about a moment when you were embarrassed you might remember not just the experience but you might in this moment be feeling the way that you felt. Did something come to your mind? Yeah,
0: I can think of embarrassing things for sure.
1: Oh, and do you feel it? Like what does it feel like in your body?
0: Like I kind of I get really cringed out and I just sort of want to like hide the hole.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I I could take us down an entire wormhole talking (laughs) about polyvagal theory and our nervous system, but I'll just give you a little bit of a tidbit here. When we feel A lot of us will notice that we feel so many of our emotions and so much of what happens in these experiences along the center line of our body, from our throat to our heart to the pit of our stomach, and it might even feel like a wave. Um, Often in moments when people are describing shame, you might have heard someone say the whitewash of shame. I don't know if Brene Brown started saying that or if she just says it often enough that I relate it to her, but I really related to that that whitewash of shame, like that heat that overflows that runs up and down my body when I think about those moments so like you say, cringeworthy moments, right? Mm. Um, our polyvagal nerve or the vagus nerve runs along the center line of our body as we were discussing those, right where those emotions tend to flow. So we feel these experiences when we remember these experiences. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is a type of uh, therapy that I do that starts to create change in that effect. When we think back on moments where there was shame or pain or suffering, we will remember that they were difficult, that they were bad, that something was not right, but we will no longer relive, re-feel, re-experience after the treatment which can be huge in opening up the possibility of change and new experiences. Because as we move through our day-to-day today and forward, we still are responding to things that trigger the past. Mm -hmm. So if the moment that we just thought back on, a moment of embarrassment, was social, we might find that in social situations, sometimes those feelings of embarrassment or maybe it's self-questioning are triggered. And so we'll talk more about this today. And I think that most of us will be able to relate to this on some level. So as we're looking at this timeline of someone's life, we're looking at the moments that have not only shaped them, but have changed them. The way culture influences and experiences led to the formation of a belief system. Um, The beliefs, especially our core beliefs, are so important. Those sound like, I am enough, I am not enough. Our core beliefs um, can have to do with safety. I am not safe. There are a lot of people who are walking through the world today believing and feeling in their bodies that they're not safe, even in moments that they are, because they had experiences when they were younger in which they truly were not safe, or safety was threatened. And so that might just look like being hypervigilant, very alert, um, looking constantly for threat and danger. And it might not even be cognizant. That's a person who might be walking around feeling especially anxious and activated, but not really understanding why. So our, our beliefs can essentially form our identity, who we think we are, what we believe we can do, and what we don't believe we can do. While our beliefs aren't beliefs are not bad, we're going to explore how some beliefs can negatively affect us and our behavior. Mm -hmm. So many of our beliefs about self are acquired and developed in childhood. And as we discussed earlier, when we were talking about neuroplasticity and brain development, Mm -hmm. for most of us, by the time we're 10, we've already established our beliefs about ourselves. Isn't that interesting that by 10 years old, so much of this is already decided. And isn't it
0: kind of scary too like
1: absolutely absolutely because up till age nine we, we don't have the kind of discernment that we do from that point forward so a lot of the messages that we receive directly we absorb like a sponge without questioning they feel like facts and the things that we're inferring or assuming similarly can be taken on as if they are fact so for example um An example I often use, because so many people um, have seen this or can relate to it, is that when a child is young and their parents are divorced, they often feel like it's their fault, which to any adult or any listener out there, we know that that is not true. It's not the case. But for kids, everything goes through the lens of what did I do wrong? What does this mean about me? And not because they're egotistical, but that's what their brain is doing at that stage. It's trying to figure out what everything means about them. Yeah. And so we, we take a lot in, we take a lot on, and at times in black and white terms. So if someone says that we are good at something, we might internalize it. If someone says we're bad at something, we might internalize it. And it might be difficult for us to challenge that moving forward forever. <laughs> um, but that does not mean we can't change it. So when we were young, our minds were highly suggestible, susceptible to messages that we received. So we were likely to adopt information in concrete terms. I am, I am not, I can, I cannot. And being suggestible means that our malleable minds are absorbing what we see and we hear. So perhaps it's a parent deriding themselves in the mirror, I'm so fat, or editing what they're eating, I can't have donuts, right? So you see how some of this can influence eating disorders. And again, this is not about blaming parents. It's just about imagining being in the shoes of a young child and what they're seeing in the world around them. Yeah. So moments like these to children um, can create beliefs such as like fat is bad. Being fat is bad. If I'm fat, I am bad. Food is good or bad. We deserve or we do not deserve food. And so we can also be adopting other people's belief systems, right? So it's what we're surrounded by. It's what we're influenced by. It's the family culture, the culture of our home, the dynamics of the people around us. We're learning and that's it. Like we're learning. We're trying to figure out how to navigate the world. And so we're looking for information to help us do that. Okay. That's that works, that's good, that's bad, that makes that person happy, that makes that person sad, you see it? Like, can you imagine how this is curious children just trying to learn and figure it out?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So there, you know, another way that this can occur is through inference. So for example, my son, when he was in first grade, he had a teacher who timed his writing assignments and the kids were told to draw illustrations then write a story about their creation. The teacher grew really frustrated with him time and time again, because he would spend nearly all the time detailing his drawings, he loved to draw. And her frustration started to send this message, you're a bad writer. And he would come home crying, saying that he couldn't do it, I'm a bad writer, I can't write. Now, this is first grade, so he's probably seven, right? in this example, he was inferring meaning. She wasn't saying this directly, but her frustration communicated something to him and his mind made, made the meaning of it, right? So it's not always verbalized. It's not even always directed at us, right? So when you look at that example of like seeing the parent in the mirror or seeing the parent um, change their relationship with food, like that parent was not intending to influence. The child, just like this teacher, though it was directed toward my child, wasn't sending a direct message. There's a lot of ways that we can absorb and create needing and hold on to these things, and they can become beliefs.
0: Yeah.
1: And because of this and everything I just described, and the way that it happens almost covertly, many of us don't even realize that we have developed a belief in the first place. Yeah. So instead, we're seeing the feelings and we're seeing our own behaviors. And that they're holding us back, they're keeping us down, and we don't understand it, and we don't think that we make sense, and we think there's something wrong with us.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Some people are highly aware of self-limiting beliefs. It's like they wear them on their sleeve. It's the you know low self-esteem and the way they feel about themselves, and it's very, very apparent. Um, The problem there is that they still think it's true. You know, in either case, it's this feeling that these things are true. So for my son, I'm a bad writer. It actually plagued him up until this year, and he's 13 now. Um, So they can stay with us, but they can also be challenged. In any of these situations, so let's go back to that, you know, the mother in the mirror or editing what she's eating. If she had said something directly to the child to indicate that, this wasn't true or that they don't need to do this and that nothing is truly bad. If they had corrected it to the child, or if another, say another loving trusted adult came in and gave an opposite message, it could have corrected and healed it. Mm -hmm. So not all of these moments are going to stick with us forever. Just like if another teacher had come into my son's life and commended him, it might not have had the impact that this did, but his other teachers didn't see that he had this doubt, so they didn't know to say it. Um, and so this is why I do EMDR. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. Quit it, mouthful, and certainly you don't need to remember it. Just remember EMDR, and you can always Google that. Mm-hmm. Um, the eye movement came from the way that this therapy was originally done. And I I always tell people to think back to cartoons. So Mm -hmm. if you think back to cartoons where someone's being hypnotized, do you remember how they would swing a pocket watch in front of, (laughs) yeah, I don't know what this cartoon in my mind is, but everyone can relate to this for some reason. When we move our eyes left and right, as if we're watching that pocket watch swing, we are crossing the center line of our body. And what we now know is that eye movement is not the only way to affect the change that we're looking for with this, which is, it's called bilateral stimulation. And what it does is it helps us get into a more relaxed state more easily. For so many people in our world, getting relaxed is very challenging. (laughs) And I can say this too, for those out there who don't feel safe, relaxing feels like a threat. So what this does is it allows us to have our eyes open or closed and to get into a state where some of our conscious thinking starts to drop away. And it allows us to feel and to connect to experiences and see them in a way that can be more challenging when we're in our normal day to day. What happens when you and I or anyone else looks back at a past experience is that we see it the way that we remember it. Mm -hmm. And we see it the same way every time, right? So our memories are our memories. But what's interesting is that in any given moment, you and I could be sitting in the same room or we could be doing this podcast having a very similar experience. In any moment, you and I are each getting hit with 40,000 pieces of information and our mind only takes 2,000 of those. Mm -hmm. So we could take a different 2,000 and have completely different experiences. My favorite example of how this happens uh, when I was 14, my friends and I went out to breakfast. And being 14 year olds, we were not seasoned restaurant goers and we got the bill and we did not have enough money for a tip. But one of my friends very excitedly <laughs> declared that she had a dime in her shoe. Oh, right. <laughs> now, We all know a dime is not a great tip, but they were very excited about the dime being contributed. And so, you know, years later, we have just laughed about that story, but two of my friends both believe it was them that had the dime in their shoe. And to this day, they mm. argue about who had the dime and none of us know whose memory is correct. That's amazing. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's so, so, so the reason I give this example is this, when we go into this state using that bilateral stimulation to relax and we start to look back at our experiences with the support of a a therapist an outside person will be so helpful in doing this work that's why you know we go to therapy um we start to zoom out on these memories and we see things that we forgot things that we missed we start to get new information which can be so helpful in balancing in these moments. You know, um, one of my first experiences with EMDR was in my training and the person that I was working with was recalling an incident related to the belief that they would always be alone. That led to fearing abandonment Mm. and it went back to an accident where a person that they love passed away. And in their memory, they believed that they were the first person and the only person on the scene. When we went back and we did EMDR, that lens widened and widened, and their scope of the view of the situation changed. And they realized that they actually had never been alone. That the friends who were with them, when it was a handful of people, because they were actually at a party down the street. So all of these people were around them. And all of the support workers were there, the firemen and the ambulance. And that one shift in view Mm. completely changed the way that he felt. He went from his body being activated the way that it would have been in that very scary, very traumatic, very sad moment, to feeling this ease wash over him. And this understanding that while the loss was profound, and the grief was very deep that he had never been alone wow. and he didn't need to fear being alone. Wow, that's incredible. When, when we go back and we look at the patterns that people with eating disorders are entrenched in, they are able to go back and see these pivotal moments so often unrelated to food. Yeah, eating disorders are rarely about food or body, but they seem to the world on the outside entirely about food and body. The relationship with our body and our relationship with our food, they become food becomes typically the way of coping, whether it's through restriction or overeating or binging or purging. It's all a management of emotion or a way to have control or containment over something when other things in our life didn't feel within our control or able to be contained. Um, when we look at how it shifts our relationship with our body, it's, we're, it's almost like a projecting you know if if we're feeling like we are bad and wrong we tend to separate from our body in a way that has us talk about our body and look at our body as if it's not us anymore and that creates almost a sense of safety that's fleeting it does not work it is not functional but it's like being in that body doesn't feel right or safe or good because i am not right or safe or good and so it puts us in this battle against ourselves but the reason that it started was to just try to find some comfort to feel okay and so people get into these battles with their bodies and into these battles with food when really what happened was there was a battle somewhere else in their life where they didn't feel like they could win yeah Um, and so you know and I say that when we look back on experiences and they rarely have anything to do with food I'm going to use control as an example, because I think we kind of demonize the idea of wanting control when it comes to eating disorders. And I want people to understand that to desire to have control is actually just a very basic human desire. None of us, and I want everyone to think about this, don't we want to feel in control? Don't we want autonomy and choice? Mm -hmm. Now with an eating disorder that what can look like this over controlling of food. So let's look at a restrictive type. That person might have had experiences when they were young where other things in their life and around them were chaotic or felt unsafe. So, think about like an unsafe home, a home where there might have been abuse or domestic violence, or it could be verbal or emotional abuse, or it could have been there was a loss Mm -hmm. when they were young. Someone that they love died or left, and you can't control that, right? And so, what it will do is Flip the switch for some of us where we're trying to control and contain and find a sense of control, but not because we're control freaks, not because we really want to be stuck in this pattern of obsession, but because what started off small will grow. And so for someone who in one day starts, you know, using control of food as a coping mechanism, what happens with Coping, and I'm going to use the word maladaptive. It sounds like a judgment, but the reason I say that maladaptive is maladaptive versus adaptive, this. The coping that remains functional for us is the adaptive kind, the kind where we don't have to do more of it to feel good. It actually gets easier over time, and it never creates problem, distress, or interference in our life. That's a really good point. I use the word maladaptive, again, not as a judgment, but just to distinguish, because there are a lot of forms of coping that actually work. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can even say, and, you know, people won't like hearing this, but like alcohol does work initially. (laughs) Doing what we're doing with food in these examples does work temporarily. Yeah. The reason that I put them in this maladaptive category is that over time people find themselves having to do more and more and more of them seeking the initial relief, but they don't get the same relief perhaps unless they do more or even if they do more and it starts to interfere or it starts to create, um, when I say interfere, a lot of us are functioning and we'll maintain functioning even when we're in the depths of disorder. So functioning is a hard thing to actually measure. So when I say interference, it's taking up more of our time than it used to. It's preventing us from doing other things. Those are more likely to be the measurements that you're going to actually see than someone's functioning change because functioning won't change until people, until this is so bad that health is um, interrupted and someone needs to actually go to the hospital, but people can go for a very long time doing these things without it actually interfering. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. Okay. So, you know, I'm talking about when I was giving those examples, things like abuse in the home and traumatic loss, but beyond trauma, we're even more likely to incur experiences that have similar effects, but that we might not qualify as trauma. So these experiences are ones that catch us off guard, that we're unable to understand or to cope with, they might overwhelm us, they might leave us questioning ourselves but we might not look back at them and go, that was trauma. So these are experiences like bullying or being put down by the people we look up to or a lack of love or attention from someone we care about. and lacking reinforcement that leaves us believing that we aren't good enough as we are. These are experiences that might leave us feeling like I was saying out of control or unimportant, inept or inadequate. So what we're finding now is that our past experiences, they influence our present. They create the basis for our behavior, for the way that we respond, the way that we react. And this is because our brain organizes information that comes through by, to like identify and make sense of our present experiences, if that makes sense. So when something new happens to us, our, our mind and body will <laughs> recognize a familiar feeling Mm-hmm. and then you can imagine almost like that movie inside out if anyone has seen oh my it, god yes it's like imagine that there's like this sorting system in your mind and mm-hmm. that organizer is going well where have we felt this before and it's like oh yeah that day when we didn't feel good enough violet and not good enough so familiar feelings will potentially store experiences together right or it could be um familiar environments can start to Um, Be be the way that we're we're storing information. So like with like similar with similar, especially when it comes to emotion. Our emotion has such a profound effect on memory and emotion and um, would how things are stored. And so our unprocessed trauma and painful experiences can easily get triggered again and again by related stimuli. Like I was saying that emotion or even a sound, a location, a scent, a person, a time of day or time of day, which is what we often don't don't think. Is oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I can tell you time of day for everyone out there listening the later in the day the um, more common the struggle and that actually makes sense if you look at our brain functioning because our preferential cortex is where our higher level decision making and our higher level thinking in general for coping like any new skills that we have any new knowledge that we have so this part of our brain is slowly drained of energy over the course of the day so what we intended to do and the way we intended to live at 8am might look a lot different at 6pm or 8pm because we're running low on those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so we know that, you know, as I'm moving through my day today, how are my past experiences showing up? Well, the way that someone looks at me might make me Question myself because I've had experiences in the past of feeling judged or questioned or being belittled or not seen as intelligent or enough, any of those, right? So even just the way someone looks at me could be my trigger. Um, Someone raising their voice. Now they might be raising their voice in excitement, but if I grew up in a household where people were yelling, I might notice myself activated at loud noises and people being even joyously loud initially before I exhale and I can come down from that. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, certain foods, let's say you know, a lot of people have had this experience. Who has had food sickness? Or uh, What am I trying to say? Food poisoning? What is the thing I was just trying to say? Food poisoning, food poisoning. Yes. You know, you see that food and you are probably flushed <laughs> and you want to turn away quickly. Right. So these the triggers, they're there. Um, For someone with an eating disorder, many foods become triggers. Many foods become, you know, seen as good or bad, fearful. So they're very triggering. Anxiety can come up around food, restaurants, mealtimes. There's there's so much there that can start to trigger fear. And there's so much there that can trigger the old discomforts and self-doubts and then the food becomes how we are coping. Um, so, EMDR, it, it's this evidence based psychotherapy. And, you know, it's akin to hypnotherapy. And anyone who has done that will know what I'm talking about. Anyone who hasn't might have kind of preconceived notions about hypnotherapy, I think, because. There are many years of uh, people going to like fairs and hypnotizing people to cluck like chickens. So I say this because those of you who are remembering me talking about that watch swinging probably associate that with hypnotherapy or being hypnotized. When we're doing this therapy, you're completely cognizant. We're conversing. There is no trance You don't wake up from it at the end. There's no snapping of the fingers. So I I say this just to help people understand more that this is a process that you are doing for yourself with the support of a therapist, not the other way around. What I love about this therapy is that you don't have to talk through every detail of a traumatic incident. Mm -hmm. You can, if you need support, ask for it. You can share as it feels necessary to you. And of course the therapist is going to be checking in to make sure that you know, things are going well and that you're remaining um, you know, within your window of tolerance and regulation so that you are able to stay present and move through the process in a way that feels good and safe. But you don't have to do the talk therapy thing of processing and reprocessing through verbally. Because what we have found is that while sharing our traumas has a profound positive benefit, repeatedly talking through our traumas can lead to a feeling like a re-experiencing mm-hmm. and a re-traumatization. Yeah. You know, and what I love about this kind of healing when it comes to the healing of eating disorders is this, that there are different levels of recovery, And I've worked in different levels of care for eating disorders. So I've worked in outpatient, like private practice, as I am now. I've worked in residential treatment and partial hospital, and um, as well as IOP, which is an individualized outpatient program. And for those of you who don't know the differences between those levels of care, um, residential is where you, you stay there 24 hours a day, you're sleeping there overnight. Partial is where you're there almost like it's your job usually a nine to five, five days a week. So there's some reintegration into life at home, meals at home and weekends. And IOP is usually three hours a day, three times a week. So you see that titration down. And I, I didn't speak to this, but inpatient would be the hospital, hospitalization level. Right. Okay. So when you're looking at each of these different levels of care, we're also looking at different levels and types of recovery. So in eating disorder recovery, there's physical recovery that's necessary, right? So we're trying to get to the place where the person has restored weight if underweight or they have um, their labs regulated if they were not menstruating, that they resume menstruation, um, that they're able to eat and normalize their eating and to manage their eating, whether it was under Over to find that happy medium, that moderation. We can also look at it through the lens of behavioral recovery. So, if you think of someone who was purging to cease purging, for example, if there was someone who was over exercising or restricting food, that behaviorally those patterns cease. Mm -hmm. And a lot of treatment programs address both of those magnificently. The psychological recovery is the one that in my opinion is not that any of these are not unnecessary but is necessary to prevent relapse and repetition because many people will get to physical recovery and to behavioral recovery but they'll still be suffering under the thoughts and the feelings that they started with. My hope for anyone in that place is that you have so many new and improved strategies for coping and managing that you're moving through with so much more peace and ease. But the true true psychological recovery might require going back and doing some healing to truly be free, to truly feel like yourself again.
0: I really love this. This was so beautiful. Everything, the way you described it, it was so clear and logical. It made perfect sense. You led from one point to another so well like it, it made just perfect mm-hmm. sense I could not have done it better myself I'm so glad that that you were doing this <laughs> it, was, it was so good it was so good and I even was thinking at times like wow what a good lead-in like that was such a good way of like and the way you, it's like you, you you just did it so well and I was like wow she's talking about that now she's bringing this in I'm like she's just
1: like rolling out the red oh Well, there's just like there's so much more to sh- that I could even share. I feel like this is plenty enough so I'm not feeling like we're missing out on anything, but it's like <laughs> uh, we could go on and on about like relapse and prevention and I just hope that people understand what I'm talking about about past experiences because I know it's almost like Freudian to to talk about it. Yeah. It's like you know, but like we are kind of the sum of our experiences <laughs> and I hope that that clicks. So, we'll see in the comments.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I really love that and I'm not just saying that. Like I felt like the way you presented this was flawless, honestly. It was really, really nice mm-hmm. and it made so much sense. You explained things clearly. You you like pre answered questions, which is always really helpful. Uh mm-hmm. I mean I didn't have to do anything. This was <laughs> <laughs> like, it, was, it was like
1: wow i loved it so thank you so much all right i and i kind of actually was thinking that and i'm like i don't know i i have so much more i want to say so i hope i didn't get greedy with your time but i really oh, appreciate oh my you.
0: Goodness. Oh, no, this is, you no this was amazing you were not really at okay. all this is so great and and i think too and I, I like i said i'm not just saying this the way you talked about experiences in general and the way like trauma yeah. could affect us or something that sticks out can affect mm-hmm. us these things can happen for anything, like even things that we might not deem traumatic. um, It's not always... We we can't just take every experience for face value. Like sometimes it's something that happened indirectly, but it affects us so much. Um, yeah. and, we, and we don't realize. And even what you said about like the inside out comparison you made, I mean, that, is, <laughs> that was just brilliant because I really love that movie. <laughs> I really like too.
1: it It's Me so good. Too. Oh my gosh. I mean, I want to know the creators of that movie so bad because yeah. they nailed it. They, they nailed really did. The, really who thought to talk about the relationship between happiness and sadness? What? what? Right. <laughs> and I swear sometimes I'll feel
0: a bit blue and I'm like, but this is <laughs> talking. Like, this and it's scary. because of that movie, no. not because of
1: anything I learned in school. Yeah, exactly. wasn't <laughs> grad school doesn't it, we're we're done with that inside out right. changed well, my life. <laughs> And it's like uh the the second frozen. I was watching it with my daughter and I was like, are people realizing what they're teaching us? It's like <laughs> just do the next best thing. Like let it go, just do the next best thing. And I'm like, God, I hope these kids remember this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: i love it it's so true and i just love it also when we see the younger generations and the way that they accept themselves so fully and the way that they speak up for themselves and they know what's right and what's not right or they know yeah. prioritize their mental health i'm like wow i'm learning so much from you like that was not normalized or not with you
1: right <laughs> no, like, i love that you're standing
0: up for yourself right uh. now You're such an advocate <laughs> yep yep i love it it's so beautiful it's like... no yeah. no no this was this was really amazing yeah. and and Yes. No, this was really good. And if anyone has any questions or wants to connect with you, because obviously, uh, you know, I'm sure some, some things came up for people listening and that's perfectly normal. But um, if they want to connect with you, find you, how can they do that? And I'll put everything in the show. Yeah,
1: you can go right to my website at ashleymccann.com. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-M-C-H-A-N. And you can find me at ashley.mccann on Instagram. Okay, great. So I'll
0: put that in the show notes so people can find you and, uh, and, and, and find out more about you and all of this work. And uh, otherwise, I just want to thank you so, so much for, for today and for sharing everything so, like I said, so eloquently, so beautifully. And uh, it was really helpful. And thank you. Just, yeah. Thank you so much. This it's was so good.
1: fun being here. I'll no, this was, again was like a and again. episode.
0: This should be like, <laughs> honestly, this was golden. So thank you so, so much. Oh, good. I hope that
1: helps. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.